This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. It seems that consumerism is consuming every conversation lately. And spoiler alert, there's much more to come from us on the topic, too. In today's episode, I talk with Emmett Conlin, a senior vice president at TD Bank, about the benefits of answering a consumer call for convenience. Later, in a sponsored segment, I have the second part of my interview with Change Healthcare's Jason Williams about AI in the revenue cycle. First, though, let's go beyond the news with Rich and Chad. Hello, this is Rich Daly, senior writer and editor for HFMA. Hi, this is Chad Mulvaney, a policy director with HFMA. Thanks for joining us on the Beyond the News segment of the podcast, where we take a quick peek at the significance of recent healthcare finance news developments. Mid the appearance of the first U.S. cases of the newest coronavirus, one accounting firm recently urged U.S. hospitals to prepare financially and operationally for a potential outbreak. So, Chad, are there any actions that you'd urge or resources that you'd recommend to hospital leaders? You know, I, I think obviously you need to monitor the news and, you know, obviously the large institutions, academic medical centers in the transportation hub cities already have plans in place and are already probably networked very closely with the CDC to follow this. But even if you're a smaller facility and maybe not as close to a major transportation hub like LAX or O'Hare or Hartsfield or DFW, you know, it's probably worth just keeping touch with the CDC to understand where preparations sit and obviously, you know, understand what to do if a case shows up at your hospital or someone who fits the profile for potentially having coronavirus to what to do next. And also think about kind of what would be your isolation plan until you could figure out how to, how to transfer this patient safely to a, a facility that could fully isolate them and also manage the care appropriately. The other thing yet is obviously it has not sort of become an issue in the U.S., thankfully. But typically when these things have happened, there have been after the fact additional funding that hospitals that were impacted could draw down from either HHS or CMS. So, you know, be aware that that funding exists and sort of pay attention to kind of those streams as the thing or as the as the outbreak evolves. Um, hopefully we won't get to the point of needing that, but those resources could be there on the back end to make hospitals whole for additional resources that they had to expend to help corral this if it comes to pass. This, this is one of those where, you know, you, you carry an umbrella with you and hope you don't need it. Yeah, it's a lot cheaper to prepare, I guess, than to try to scramble after the fact. Correct. So then uh, changing gears a little bit, there was a recent health affairs article that highlighted the challenges of a partnership between a large food bank and Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. So, Chad, how does this, uh, this look sort of um, highlight uh, the different challenges and insights that you've heard about from healthcare leaders related to initiatives that target uh, the so-called social determinants of health? I mean, it is fully squared with what we heard 
at our most recent thought leadership retreat in October of 2019, which was focused on social determinants of health. And a lot of the key themes that Wexner wrestled with as they partnered with the, with the food bank were the same things that our, our, the, our more progressive members who are deeply involved in this are struggling with. It's a lack of standardization for data. It's figuring out how to capture and share the data and close loops in care plans when refer someone out to a, to, to a community organization to help address a, a social need. It's even dealing with the more mundane privacy standards because you still have to protect patient privacy in these cases. And the other thing, and I think most frustrating for all of us, is sustainable funding. A lot of the organizations that are HFMA members that have experience in this, when you talk with them, the punchline is, yeah, we had a grant. We were doing really good work. We were seeing this change in an outcome measure, and it was going in the right direction, whether it's reduced readmissions, reduced ambulatory sensitive admissions, patients complying with care plans, what have you. And then the grant funding run out, runs out and the good work stops until they can sort of literally scrape up kind of the ashtray change to, to, to get the program going again. And by that time, you've, you've lost a lot of momentum. So uh, ongoing challenges, important to keep track in order to find solutions. Okay, well, thanks a lot for those insights, Chad. And thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Hey, Rich, always a pleasure talking with you. Of course, you can keep up with the latest legal policy and practice developments related to healthcare finance at our daily news site at hfma.org forward slash news. Thanks for listening. Is your organization a high performer in revenue cycle? Earn the recognition you deserve with a MAP award from HFMA. My name's Christy Pahanage. I'm the Associate Vice President of Revenue Management Operations at Geisinger. We pride ourselves on the MAP Award, having received it 12 times. Geisinger takes a lot of pride in our results. Our team is very dedicated to the metrics, looking at what's getting measured and making sure that we're able to deliver results for the organization. Find out more about HFMA's MAP Award by visiting HFMA dot org slash map award. I'm not telling you anything new when I say that consumerism is more important than ever in healthcare. One strategy many healthcare organizations have to provide quicker and easier access to care is to build and create urgent care centers, ambulatory centers, and other services that provide convenient care to patients. Today, I'm talking with Emmett Conlin of TD Bank about the opportunities of such a strategy, as well as what health systems need to be thinking about before they begin. To start, I asked him the simple question, what are the benefits of answering a consumer call for convenience? Without question, the focus on the patient uh, as a consumer as opposed to just a head in the bed, uh, you know, as, as it used to be referred to. Uh, and I think this, the focus there and as we discussed about this outpatient and this delivery model, uh, I think when it's managed properly, these settings can lead to lower operating costs and increased revenue as they develop the systems, market, and outreach and expand the footprint and taking additional market share in this competitive environment. Those types of facilities also allow systems to move you know, the less acute outpatient volume from the hospital to these lower cost settings optimizing, you know, freed up hospital space for more complex and higher acuity procedures and therefore driving revenue. 
I also think on the personal front, when you're talking about uh, the, the evolution of the digital platform, healthcare apps and patient portals, you know, allowing a patient to manage themselves, their scheduling appointments, payment processing, prescription refills, all in, you know, you could see the real effort there to reduce the uh, expense of the revenue cycle. And, and also with that, I think you, again, are always going back to enhancing the patient experience, enhancing the brand. Uh, building that brand loyalty, and without question, you know, an institution should feel that on its revenue side as uh, they become committed to that brand. We've been hearing a lot here at HFMA, not only about adopting the consumer mindset, but also the competition between hospitals and health systems and freestanding emergency rooms and telehealth options. And those those things seem to be growing how can hospitals and health systems compete in that area of quicker and easier access to care? You know, I would say it's here to stay. Uh, there's no avoiding it. So I, I think the best way to compete with that is to be the driver and developer of these consumer-friendly services, uh, to be innovative in their thinking, to be proactive, uh, to be reaching out into the markets. Um, I think this outpatient focus, this consumer focus, combined with the highly recognizable and reputable brands of the hospital and the systems that are developing these uh, is a real differentiator when it comes to that consumer engagement, especially when they have to make a choice. I think clearly with that uh, institution that's been in the community for a very long time has brand recognition or has, uh, you know, uh, this historical quality delivery of services that, that can be leveraged. And I think that's the key competitive advantage uh, in maintaining and I'd say leveraging that brand connection that they have, uh, so they're already have one foot in the door with the, you know, with these potential clients and with their customers these days. I think we all know that people travel near and far to get to to see the right doctor, but I think healthcare still is a very local service, and I think the communities that they're in want to support those systems that have been there for a very long time, you know, just based on all the good that they do and uh, their commitment to those communities. You know, clearly, as long as they provide, you know, uh, and the consumer receives affordable, convenient, quality care, I think that's still there. And I think that's, I think that connection to the local hospital is still very important to the individuals in the community. Uh, I'd like to talk specifically about telehealth now. It's another really hot topic. And one thing that I haven't heard really is how to do it right. Do you have any success stories you can share about healthcare organizations that have adopted telehealth? Yeah, I would say success in how to do it right is clearly dependent upon, you know, an organization's strategy for telehealth or their digital connection. Without question, it's a rapidly evolving technology. So I, I do think it's case by case. But yes, we have seen um, and have been engaged with some you know, what we would consider very successful telehealth programs um, with some of our clients. And I think the one common one that I think we've all read about and have seen, we've witnessed, and it was when telehealth is utilized to help improve access to care, the ability for the system to extend a provider's reach, uh, such as when patient care or a caregiver doesn't have that local presence. And it gives them that ability to connect to a provider that isn't within that market to visit. And I think this is particularly powerful in those remote and medically underserved communities. I do believe access to care is a, you know, is a developing problem that we're reading more and more about. And I, I think this is going to be a significant tool in addressing the issue. 
beyond that, I think also where we've seen it utilized is within the hospital, where uh, institutions have been laser focused on leveraging telehealth to be complementary to their existing operations, you know, such as the monitoring of hundreds, hundreds of patients across multiple campuses of these large systems that are being developed. You know, typically, you know, what we have seen is, you know, this uh, monitoring coming from a control center, which offers uh, immediate access to specialists, to caregivers via dual cameras, and also offering this constant coverage and the monitoring of key health initiatives. Um, and without question, I think, you know, what we've uh, been told is that the outcomes here are showing improved quality of care, improved initiatives and uh, timely response. And I also think it's giving them the ability to centralize and collect all of this data, which then they're able to utilize on developing care methodologies. Enabling consumerism is more important than ever. Find out how well your revenue cycle is meeting consumers' needs and get actionable advice on how you can take it to the next level. Hear takeaways on how to improve performance from HFMA's new consumerism maturity model. Join us for the HFMA Revenue Cycle Conference in New Orleans on March 30th through April 1st and earn up to 14 CPE credits. Learn more at hfma.org rcc. Two weeks ago, I talked with Change Healthcare's Jason Williams about the opportunities for AI in the revenue cycle. But with every opportunity comes challenge, and there are some important points for healthcare organizations to consider with AI. Today, I have the second part of our conversation where Williams addresses some of those challenges. What are some of the challenges that providers should be aware of with AI? AI is fundamentally math. It's not magic, and it's not perfect. Data is not perfect. People aren't perfect because the data comes from people, AI learns what we teach it, including any biases or errors that, that are captured in the data. For example, I mentioned charge capture. If uh, charge capture recommendations from AI could be off if, for example, your charge master was not properly set up. So I think there's a fundamental understanding people need to have of that point. But there's a couple other things I would say as far as challenges that come to mind. And the first I kind of consider, this is not a scientific AI term, but I consider it refinement because healthcare data is just a resource like oil, for example, that doesn't have intrinsic value until it gets refined. And to refine data with artificial intelligence, assuming you have enough data, uh, you need access to the limited supply of data science experts that manipulate it, as well as investing in technology to build and deploy the modeling algorithms. Uh, for us uh, at Change Healthcare, that's meant hiring dozens of data science professionals and investing in purpose-built technology to train models. You know, this is critical because when AI is done poorly, your team won't use it because they end up having to sift through too many recommendations that aren't real. Alert fatigue is real. Another point, in addition to that kind of refinement and ability to, to manage and do AI appropriately at, at the level of performance that's necessary to avoid alert fatigue is the delivery of it. From that standpoint, it's necessary not just to build the models and be able to predict, but to get predictions to a person at the time they can use it to make a decision. There's one last point I would make, too, uh, that comes to mind. A lot of times people think about AI as somewhat of a black box because you know, decision makers and people that are working with AI-empowered solutions 
may not understand all the math behind how AI is coming up with what it's coming up with, how is it making its predictions. I saw a fact the other day, it said AI can predict male or females 100% accurately by retina scans. No one knows how it's doing it, though. <laughs> they know it's 100% accurate, but no one at this point has figured out why it's 100% accurate. Uh, that's important because whose fault is it when the AI goes wrong? AI is fundamentally expected to be better than people at doing jobs. And an example I'd throw, just so folks can understand this, is you think about all the scrutiny that comes when a Tesla car gets into a, con a collision. Um, Tesla's got a, a much better accident rate than the general population of humans out there driving on the road, but there's huge scrutiny because it has to be much, much better. The autopilot in the plane has to be much, much better than the pilot because the algorithm, the machine, doesn't get sleepy. It doesn't get distracted. It doesn't get inebriated. Those things don't happen. And so there's a, there's a higher standard that I think we subject the AI to. And because of that, and the, the impacts potentially of those decisions that come from the black box, uh, it's another challenge that is, we have to understand as we go to deploy this technology more actively in healthcare. For all the listeners who are thinking, this sounds great, I really want to look into AI for my organization, how do they know that their organization is a good candidate for an AI-powered approach to the revenue cycle? And what do they need to do to be ready? And the question I think they have to ask is, is, is their organizational culture ready? Organizational culture has been an inhibitor to getting value from data and analytics for years that I've been in and around data. There was a survey I saw recently that healthcare leaders, 70% of these leaders believe that culture is the biggest threat to innovations like AI being successful. So I think as organizations are considering their culture and are they really ready to take on AI, part of it's recognizing that there's going to be resistance. And that resistance comes from several facts. You know, and the first of those is that predictions don't manage processes. People do. And the black box that I mentioned doesn't necessarily inspire trust. So if people are going to act on those results, that's something to recognize. If it's viewed as IT's thing, artificial intelligence, then your domain experts don't necessarily engage with it. As well as another fact that you hear often in the trades is that automation is generally threatening to people that are doing the work. So those are all the potential sources of resistance that I think come into play. And so to create a momentum and to really help drive that culture, one of the things that, that I've seen be successful is to train and pump up your people, you know, to make them the AI owners, as it were, which isn't that difficult because they tend to think it's cool. And if they don't feel like it's all the province of IT, then so much the better. I think it, it really helps to endorse and engage their domain expertise because, frankly, that expertise is critical to get AI performance to be what it needs to be in the operational processes, as well as getting the, the process workflows right of where and how the AI needs to be injected into the organization's operations. So you need them for AI to be successful. And I think you can, you can easily get them there through that, that kind of recognition and inclusion of their expertise and how you plan to deploy the AI. And, and as with anything that's new, continuing to communicate the priority of continuing down an artificial intelligence path now that we have all this data and we've lived in our EHRs and our patient accounting systems for so many years, it is imperative at this point that we really are leveraging that data to get to best practices in RevCycle operations. So I think making that an organizational kind of a, a flag in the sand, as it were, and then celebrating your early successes and, and the people that contribute to those successes is also going to help with that 
kind of cultural resistance that can come because it is a change. This segment was sponsored by Change Healthcare. Change Healthcare is a healthcare technology company that offers software, analytics, network solutions, and technology-enabled services to help create a stronger, more collaborative healthcare system. Our provider solutions help increase patient access, ensure clinically appropriate care, and manage claims and payments across the revenue cycle. For more information, visit changehealthcare.com. all gotten used to ICD-10, guess what? ICD-11 is on its way. But before you feel the need to look up the codes for irritability or compulsive swearing, by the way, those are R45.4 and F42.8 respectively. Here are five fast facts that should set your mind at ease. ICD-11 MMS, which stands for Mortality and Morbidity Statistics, was developed by 300 specialists from 55 countries organized into 30 main working groups. The earliest date any country may start using ICD-11 is January 1st, 2022, but the United States is likely to adopt it later as there's no deadline for implementation. And if history is any indicator, we'll make it out of the 2020s before we adopt it. Most countries that use ICD-10 began in the 1990s or early 2000s, long before the U.S. did in 2015. ICD-11 incorporates several significant changes. For example, it's multilingual. There are also updates that make it easier to use with today's technology. One major focus of ICD-11 is to support better morbidity data collection. ICD-10 had 14,400 codes for injuries, diseases, and causes of death. ICD-11 has 55,000. ICD-11 might not be on the immediate horizon for U.S. health systems, but preparation is still critical. The World Health Organization has made a transition guide available and we'll link it for you in the show notes. Information for this segment was provided by Bill Wagner, Chief Operating and Security Officer of KiwiTech LLC. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our president and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. And on next week's episode, you can hear his interview with Ben Carter from Trinity Health. If all the revenue cycle talk in today's episode has you wanting more, sign up for our revenue cycle conference in New Orleans. You can do that at hfma.org events. I'll be there, so please come say hi. In the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch with me or anyone else on the team, you can contact us at podcast at hfma.org.